Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. This is a West Coast-based program, so I think I will once again start with a West Coast-based topic, like I did yesterday. Same topic. Different day, same topic. Quickly, somebody better pull A.J. Pollock off the Padres. And while you're at it, get a hold of Will Smith also. Because these two dudes are destroying their week and possibly their entire season. In the opener of a must-win series for the Padres. In the opener of a series that the Padres absolutely had to have. Pollock had not one, but two major moments. Let me just go back before we talk about last night's marathon. Game one, there was that cold-blooded robbery of Manny Machado. High fly ball, deep left field, Pollock to the wall, it is caught! AJ took it away! Pollock robs Machado and the Dodgers... Right, we covered that, but just as a refresher, that was in game one. So he brought that one back. Machado thought he got all of it. He thought it was gone. I thought it was gone. It wasn't, but Pollock was not done. Then he came up with a big knock later in that same game. Pollock shoots a base hit into right field. One run is in. Here comes another. Throw goes to third, not in time. And a two-run single for A.J. Pollock. So this guy single-handedly wrecked them in the opener. And if those two moments were not enough to break the Padres' spirit, then everything that took place last night probably was. Now, don't get it twisted, Padre fan. I'm not here to pile on your guys. I'm not looking to get up on the top rope and come with the flying elbow and then drop you when you're asleep already on the canvas. I'm not about that. And I'm certainly not going to do what Dodger fans are doing right now, and that's sitting back, rolling up their blunts, and cackling about the fact that your guys lost a game that they had to have in 16. 16 innings last night. You know me. I'm all about the positive. I'm all about being half full as a glass. The good news is, after taking that huge gut punch in the first game, the Padres did come back last night. They fought their asses off. They had Blake Snell on the mound. This is why they brought this guy in. They needed something special from him, and they got it. He was dominant. Ten strikeouts in seven and two-thirds innings, the longest outing of his career. That's why you bring in a guy like Snell. Because that's the kind of guy that you want on the mound to stop a losing streak, stop the bleeding, and start a winning streak, and potentially turn your season around. And he gave San Diego everything he had. And the Padres gave it right back to him. Like on the rare moments when he looked like he might be in some trouble, the defense had his back. Like this in the top of the second. Fly ball, struck well to deep left. Myers going back at the wall. He makes the catch. Right in front of the wall and on the warning track. Out number two of the second inning. Nicely done by Will Myers and left. So you see that and you think to yourself, maybe, maybe they're back on track. Maybe this is their night. You think that might be the case, and especially when you see this in the top of the fourth. You've been practicing your golf game. That's what you've been doing. Got a little long drive. Oh, a nice catch by Trent Grisham. Hey, flashbacks of Steve Finley right there. Steve Finley, yo. My guy, Steve Finley, I love that flashback. All right, so you see Snell dealing like that. You see the Padres defense picking him up like that, and you're thinking, all right, 
Things are about to turn around for the brown and gold. Win this game, get into that wild card, and then anything can happen. The kind of game that an entire season can turn on. One problem. While Snell was dominating, Walker Bueller was nearly as dominant. So Snell and the Padres didn't have much of a cushion when Will Smith came to the plate in the eighth. Smith hits a fly ball, deep left field. This game is tied! In his fifth consecutive road game where he's gone deep. Yeah, well, crap. Sorry about that, Padre fan. Two games, two Will Smith bombs, and this one meant that everybody was about to settle in for a long night. I mean, a long-ass night. Because that game did not just go extra innings. It went to all the innings. How many extra innings? Not one, not two, not three, Three, not four, not four, not not five, five, not six. six, Remember when MLB brought about that stupid rule for ghost runners to shorten extra inning games? Yeah, well, it didn't matter last night because there was just about nothing that was going to end that game. I'm not going to say that game was long. But at one point, the Padres' Twitter account posted, and I quote, there is no escape. You're here forever, end quote. And at that point, I believed them because that game lasted five hours and 59 minutes, a six-hour baseball game, 19 different pitchers, nearly 500 pitches thrown, 11 intentional walks, eight by the Dodgers, most this century, The Padres ran out of position players. They had to have pitchers start pinch hitting. Now, here's the thing. You talk about a game like that. I don't know if that game was awesome or if that game was crappy. I mean, really, last night's game was so long that time actually stopped. My perspective on everything got turned inside out and upside down. It started Wednesday night, and it was still going Thursday morning. I mean, I was totally prepared. Totally prepared. Mm! Yeah, you didn't see that, Alvy, did you? Mm -mm. totally prepared for that game to still be going when the sun came up and chalk started killing mice i was getting ready for them i was getting ready for them to be well into the 40th inning as i came on the air this morning man that game was so long that game was so long that up was down Black was night, day was night, or black was white, day was night. And I got more and more punch drunk with every single inning. So again, was that the best game ever or the worst game ever? Yes. I just know that it was not the most clutch game ever. L.A. went 5 for 27 with runners in scoring position. That's not good. And yet it was still so much better than the Padres going 2 for 24. The two teams stranded a combined 35 base runners. The Padres had three hits in the first five innings and then none until the 15th. A complete nine-inning game no-hitter in the middle of the game. That's how crazy that game was. They were no-hit for an entire game in the middle of the game. I'm not sure if that says more about the Dodgers or the Padres. Credit to the Dodger pitchers for dominating like that. Zero credit to their offense for not being able to capitalize on that. Normally, you win games when you throw no hitters. 
the Dodgers had two guys thrown out in rundowns between third and home. Again, either great or terrible. I can't even tell at this point. Snell himself was asked about it, and he said, quote, this was really weird. Both teams have stacked lineups, can really hit. I mean, when did we score more than just one run? The 15th inning? What is that? It was just weird, end of quote. Well, he's not wrong, right? That was weird. And as I always say, normally weird is good. But last time for the Padres, weird was a sledgehammer to the package. Because in the top of the 15th, the Dodgers pushed across a couple. And you thought, finally, good. At this point, who the hell even cares who wins? Let's just turn out the lights, shut it down, nap it out for a few hours, and then get up and do it again. Except that was not the case. We weren't going to get that because even if Padre fan himself wanted to go home, the Padres themselves were not ready to. In the bottom of the 15th, when he was having a rough, rough night at the plate, Fernando Tatis Jr. did this. Fly ball. Deep right field off the bat of Fernando. That ball is back and it is gone! Fernando Tatis Jr. is tied to score in the bottom of the 15th inning. Normally, when that guy jumps ship, it is the best thing ever. Except when he did it last night, all I could think is great. 15 more innings. I'll be on the air, live tweeting, and trying to do this show while that game is still going on. And yes, you could have timed El Nino's trip around the bases with a sundial, but I don't think that was him jogging. I think that was him sprinting because that was all of us. Like, great moment. But oh no, that meant we had to keep going, right? But for how long? Then thankfully, mercifully, in the 16th, A.J. Pollock for once said, man, I have had enough of this. He was tired. He was done. He knew it was time to end it. Cameron is 1-2. Pollock hammers the ball deep center field. Forget about it. Gone. Two-run blast. Dodgers back. This dude is an animal. And how about those Dodgers? I'm not sure it's more insane. The fact that they have now ripped off 15 of 17? Or the fact that they have ripped off 15 of 17 and they're still looking up at Frisco? They're still two and a half games back of Frisco. Hey, yo, Frisco fan. Yeah, I know you hate being called Frisco. Why do you think I do it, Frisco? Hey, Frisco fan. You're still getting your love. I know you think that you're getting overlooked and disrespected and that all anybody wants to talk about is L.A. and San Diego, but I just hyped you, Frisco, right in the middle of a Dodgers-Padres take. So go ahead and miss me with that, Frisco. You're welcome. Speaking of the Padres, they have now lost 11 of 13, and the last two have been at the hands of A.J. Pollock. I'm not going to say that A.J. Pollock is officially a season killer for the Padres, but he has single-handedly wrecked them two nights in a row, two games in a row that they had to have. This guy has single-handedly and personally snatched their souls. Now, I'm not saying the Padres season is over, but it is on life support. And A.J. Pollock is on the verge of being the guy to rip that plug right out the wall. Oh, and one more thing about this. As they go to break. Show me your... I can't do it. I can't do it. 
I'm all about self-preservation. Never mind hot dogs taking minutes off your life. That impression right there takes years off my life. Like, how the hell did the spork do it all those years? Me, I'm going to make a business decision. I am making a business decision. You know, kind of like Derek Rose saying he has to think about life after basketball. He does not want to be sore in all those boardroom meetings that he's going to have. He wants to make sure that he's there for his kids' birthday parties. Like Derek Rose, I am making a business decision. So I will not continue with that. I want to be able to have a simple conversation at the dinner table when I bounce from this gig. So I am making a business decision, and I will not do that again. So does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, and you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for all the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a very simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream. And it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. I have it. I use it. I love it. That means no more juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the best part, there is no annual contract. Get rid of all that clutter and all that confusion and get your TV together once and for all with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Demario Davis is my guest. Demario, good to have you back. How are you? Oh, great to be back. Thanks for having me on. How you doing, bro? Good, dude. Good. Great to hear your voice. All right, so a final preseason game still to go, and then it's time to fully lock in on the regular season. I'm kind of curious. It's been such an interesting camp from the outside looking in. What's it been like for you on the inside? What's the vibe like around the team? Well, every year, you know, you come in, you have to build it from the ground up, no matter what kind of success or uh, outcome you had the, the year before. You have to rebuild it from scratch. It's a new team. Fortunately, we retained a lot of the same guys. Um, you know, so our culture is still intact. And so uh, it's just building on, you know, what we already have been able to, to, to do well and, you know, kind of fine-tune the areas where we know we have to improve and get ready for, for this journey of a season. You know what, it's really interesting you said that because your teammate, DB, C.J. Gardner-Johnson, had a similar quote, an amazing quote, when he talked about the mentality and the mentality of the rest of the defense. He effectively said what you just said, but he said, quote, I don't want to fall short. I don't want to fall short. Bleep, it's long when you fall short. You've got to start over, end quote. So to the point you just made, how challenging is it that at the end of the season, when you sacrifice everything, if you don't win the Super Bowl, you do know you have to start over. And how much does that motivate you? Well, even if you even if you win the Super Bowl, you have to start over. The, right. the, the unfortunate part of uh, you know chasing the championship is you can give everything and do what feels like everything is right and still fall short. But you only have a, a, a chance. That's what you're really fighting for is a chance to to win it all, and that requires you know endless preparation. You know endless hours of film study and work and chemistry and, you know, uh, everything that requires to even, you know, be in the dance. And then when you get there, you need, you need uh, 
for it all to go right for you to for you to win it. And it's tough when you work that hard and lose. But I think you you know the competitors are willing to, to 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 get back up, dust themselves off, and go for it again. And so we understand the mountain that 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 we have to climb, and uh, we know how much work it, that goes into it. And um, the only way that you even have a chance of getting there is to to, to put in what it takes. Demario Davis is joining us. All right, so obviously Drew Brees meant so much to the team over the years, and when he retired, it would be easy to think that this might be a rebuilding year, but again, from the outside, it does not feel like that at all. In fact, even though a Hall of Fame quarterback is retired from a team that was so close to the Super Bowl in recent years, it feels like the expectations are all still the same. Is that accurate, and does it feel that way to you? Well, it's certainly a new team, um, but we've built, you know, a championship culture, you know, to, like I said, to have a chance every year. And uh, we know how much work that takes, and we have put that work. You have a lot of guys here who who have put that work in, who knows what it's going to take and, and know what the execution level and standard has to be at, and that's the only standard that we have. And um, I think it requires – uh, losing a lot of guys um, for that culture to change. That's really what it is. You have to have enough guys that understand the culture that it takes. Now, uh, there is no secret when you lose somebody to, of that magnitude, a Hall of Famer at any position, especially the most important one. You know, it's gonna it's gonna be different. You know, but um, our team uh, is, is is kind of built to. Uh, withstand that obstacle and that challenge. And so, um, you know, and that, that's a credit to the organization for having all the right pieces and retaining all the right guys. And uh, we certainly look forward to the challenge that this season is going to bring. Um, we know it's going to have its, its challenges, its ups and its downs, and uh, we've had them before and we're prepared for it. Since linebacker Demario Davis, my guest, you know, you mentioned culture. I think that the average fan probably has heard that so many times from so many players and coaches. They kind of they tune it out, but the fact of the matter is, it means everything. Culture means mm-hmm. everything. Like I've always enjoyed talking to you in the past, and I've always enjoyed talking to Quan Alexander in the past. And then I think of the two of you guys together on the field. It seems like you've got amazing chemistry both on and off the field. You've said that might be because he's from Alabama and you're from Mississippi, and that you have similar approaches to both life and football. So, in terms of culture and your approach, how would you describe the way the two of you approach football? <laughs> It's simple, man. We just we just uh, got a name for our, our, our unit for the LB unit, and it's the Juice Boys. That's that's really what we bring uh, to the game. You know, our coach, you know, he tells us, Sean always is telling us, you know, the difference fact is bringing energy. You know, this game cannot be played without energy, and we both bring a ton of energy. And so we always tell our teammates, you know, y'all bring the cups and the ice, we gonna bring the juice, <laughs> and you know, we gonna have a lot of fun. We gonna we gonna you know bring the plays that, that, that gives that electrifying feeling, you know, and that's that's what we wanted to do is kind of be that electrical current, you know, for our team that, you know, they never got to worry about going in the game. They're not being enthusiasm, energy, um, and everybody just has to bring that execution, and that's what's going to be, you know, kind of that, that edge factor for us. I love that. You guys bring the cups and the ice. We'll bring the juice. All right, so we mentioned Drew Brees, Demario. You've got a quarterback situation where Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill both have been competing for the job of starting quarterback. What do you make of how they've played and how they both have handled that situation? Yeah, I think it's a lot of eyes on that position, you know, um, you know, stepping in 
to to be the successor of a Hall of Fame quarterback. And I think they both handled it in a very professional manner. They both came out and competed every single day. Um, you know, I think the coaches and, you know, are the ones who are watching that in detail and know what to look for as far as us defensively. You know, our mindset is it doesn't matter who's over there. Our job is to, to get off the field as quickly as possible and um, get the ball back for them. And, you know, we want that last drive to come down to us. And so that's our mentality is, uh, you know, uh, we know our coaches are going to pick whoever the, they're going to give us the best chance to win to be in that position. Um, and, and we're comfortable with whoever that is um, because we know what we got to do on defense. Talking to Demario Davis, I'm not asking you to make a pick. It's not your job to do that, right? But I'm kind of curious, like, and Jameis is a big-time talent. We know this. You know, you're the top pick overall. He had a great college career. How much has he changed or maybe evolved and improved since he arrived in New Orleans? Do you notice a change in him, both on and off the field? Yeah, I think I think uh, the one thing that sticks out about him is uh, his work ethic. Um, and, you know, I think Alvin talked about, you know, he's had success in his league. He's had a 5,000-yard season, and not many people have, have been able to do that, and um, you have to give him credit for that. And so I think having a, a year uh, to sit behind, you know, one of the best decision makers in the game, he's definitely had, you know, had been able to learn a lot. And then having to play for a, co- a coach who knows how to adapt the offense around, uh, certain individuals that has had to, to help him out, um, you know, extremely well. And I think the thing that I've seen him him do more uh, this year is, you know, he's he's a lot faster getting the ball out, and he's he's doing a real good job of, you know, finding the right reads and where to go with the ball and doing that quickly. And so, um, certainly going against our defense every day has is, is, is been a challenge, I think, for him. But I mean, he's. He's uh, progressed uh, phenomenally, and, and, and Taysom has too. Tomorrow, Davis, my guest. All right, so I mentioned off the very top, you and your wife are hosting a final dinner with the Davises tomorrow at Kenner City Park Pavilion in Kenner, Louisiana. It's a free event with food, family time, free COVID vaccines as well. How did the idea come to be, and why is it something that is so important to you and your wife? Well, first, you know, we always looking for ways to give back to the cities that give so much to us. And um, we were the same way in New York and Cleveland. But New York, I mean, New Orleans uh, has given us so much. And, um, you know, just being able to, to, to give back. And for us, particularly my wife, she was it was her idea, uh, you know, dinner as a family is very important to us. Just spending their time and just fellowship and uh, laughing and communicating. And teaching our kids, you know, that dynamic of, you know, uh, eating together as a family. That's just a big thing in our house. And um, it's kind of not uh, as big as it was at one time in our society. And that could be for a lot of different reasons. And, and you know, people are more busy. Kids are playing, you know, more extracurricular activities during that time. And so what we want people to, to kind of know is even though your life may be on the go, just stopping and just enjoying time with, with your family and, and having fun. And at our house, dinner is fun. You know, we have music playing. We're telling jokes and stories. And so, like, that's kind of the environment we create. You know, we have a DJ playing music, people dancing, uh, you know, just eating and just spending time as a family and, and with friends and laughing and having a good time. And that's kind of that environment we wanted to create and just extend from our house to others. I think that sounds great. So really quickly, if folks want more information, where do they go to get it? 
uh, they can look on our on our website, devoteddreamers.org, or on my uh, my wife's uh, blog site, The F Word. There you go. New Orleans Saints linebacker, a two-time All-Pro, a Bart Star Award winner, and a Walter Payton Man of the Year recipient, too. Demario Davis, my guest. Demario, great to get caught up, man. Thank you so much. Good luck, and let's do it again soon. Thank you. You guys are blessed, man. Thank you, brother. Hey, you want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back that you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit on how much you can earn. Now, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations do apply. All right, so this year's NFL training camp has been loaded with quarterback battles. Good ones, too. New England, Frisco, Denver, Chicago, New Orleans, to name a few. Some good ones. But the biggest and closest of those battles has been decided. It is now official. Alvin, go ahead and set me up for this because I'm not sure anybody listening saw this coming. I'll own it. I know I didn't. Because after that knockdown, drag it out brawl to the very end, it is now officially official. Trevor Lawrence is starting for the Jags. I mean, dang. To quote Kevin Garnett, anything is possible. Well, you want to talk about amazing. Damn, my mind is blown. Trevor Lawrence, QB1, who knew? Especially with his coach, Herb blathering on about all the competition at that position. So come to find out, the number one pick in this year's draft just did edge out the 178th pick in the 2019 draft. Oh my goodness gracious, of all the dramatic things. Of all the dramatic things I... Oh my goodness gracious. Oh my good gracious Trevor Lawrence beat out Gardner Minshew yeah I don't think I've been that stunned since Roger Clemens was standing in George Steinbrenner's box it's Trevor so again Trevor Lawrence has won Urban Myers quarterback battle like who would have believed that it's almost like the Americans beating the Soviets in Lake Placid all over again do you believe in miracles? Yes! Do you believe in miracles? Yes! What an upset. He beat all the odds. This is like when the ginger assassin picked up that 7-10 split. Come on, kid, do it. I mean, damn. Let's take it down for a notch. Why don't we take it down a notch and get serious, though, for one minute? Do yourself a favor. Look over at a clock. What time is it? Make a mental note. Take a photo. Because that's the moment you're going to want to tell your grandkids about. That this is definitely one of those where were you when moments. Where were you when the Jags announced that Trevor Lawrence would be their starting quarterback in week one? Where were you when the guy who went 34-2 and as a starter in college was named the starter for the Jags? 
What kind of emotions did you feel when it became official that the guy was regarded as the best quarterback of a generation ripped the starting job? Man, what a time to be alive. And I'm sure everybody involved is so much better for it, given how hard Herb wanted you to believe that it wasn't already decided the day that he agreed to take that job. That it wasn't already decided the day they selected Lawrence number one overall. Where were you when you found out that Trevor Lawrence edged out Gardner Minshew? Man, what a time to be alive. But it wasn't just Jacksonville that made it official. The Broncos also announced that their quarterback battle is over. Tuesday, Vic Fangio said that he had not made a decision and that the battle was, quote, still pretty damn close. Yesterday, though, the team made it official and the winner is Teddy Bridgewater. Yes, Teddy Two gloves. First off, the fact that he's been named the starter in Denver nearly five years to the day when his career nearly ended in Minnesota, to me, is pretty amazing. I know that he's not looking to get hype for that, but what he's been through does bear repeating. This is not just a guy who had a bad knee injury a few years back. He had one of the worst injuries ever. He wasn't just on the verge of losing his career. My man was on the verge of losing his leg. And not in a Napoleon McCallum kind of way either. I mean, legitimately. Don't believe me. This is the description from the doctor who performed the surgery. Dan Cooper told Ian O'Connor, quote, It was just a horribly grotesque injury. The leg was, quote, mangled. And there's more, quote, you make the skin incision and there's nothing there. It's almost like a war wound. Everything is blown, end quote. Not like this guy took a wrong step, unless that step was stepping on a landmine. Like this dude nearly had his leg blown off. The injury was so bad, the players at the time on the field Players that know what they sign up for. Players that have seen everything and experienced everything. Those same players were on the field screaming, cursing, and praying. So bad that Mike Zimmer canceled practice. As Cooper said, quote, This surgery was an absolute gut test. A test of what you're made of. And I've seen it break people down. I never saw it break Teddy down. Most people have no idea the volume of the workload this kid had to put in. He had a toothpick of a leg that he had to rebuild. End of quote. And he rebuilt it to the point that he got some action as a backup in New Orleans for a couple of years. Then he was the starter in Carolina last year. And now he's beating out Drew Locke for the starting job in Denver this year. I mean, it's really impressive. He may, in fact, never be the guy that he was on his way to being, but I'm going to argue that he's even more impressive than that. And it is the right call for the Broncos. He is the safer pick, the pick who is going to throw fewer picks, and that's what the Broncos need right now. They don't need a guy who's going to go out there and carry them to wins week in and week out. They need a guy who's not going to get them beat week in and week out. Denver led the league in giveaways last year. They also had six one-possession losses. I'm not saying that's all on Drew Locke, but there's a reason why he went from being the future of that team as a rookie to battling with a vet for his job in just his third year. There's a reason why the Broncos reportedly were so interested in Matthew Stafford, Aaron Rodgers, and Deshaun Watson, and why they considered 
another quarterback in the draft and why they ended up with Teddy Bridgewater in the first place. The reason is the fact that Locke was tied for the lead in picks last season. That's the reason. Again, the team led the league in giveaways and had six tight losses. You make fewer mistakes. You win more games. It's a pretty simple formula. And again, let's not be confused. This is not about Bridgewater not being Locke. Bridgewater also played his ass off in the exhibition. He completed 84% of his passes. He led the offense to three touchdowns and a field goal on his four drives. I'm not saying that means that's the end of Locke in Denver or the end of Locke in the NFL. I'm not saying that. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he played at some point this year. But Bridgewater won that job. It's the right call. He earned it. And you ask anybody around the team during the camp, and they will tell you, not only did he win the job, he made Locke better in the process. So you're hanging out with some friends, and you're putting back a few drinks, and then a few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's not that big of a deal. What are the odds that you get pulled over anyway? Even so, what's the worst thing that could happen? Your insurance goes up a bit. You lose your license. You lose your job. You total your car. You kill somebody. Everybody knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic. They're often deadly. However, that still does not stop everybody from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. This is why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. If you think it's okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe. Plan ahead. Get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or somebody else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Paid for by NHTSA. Peyton Pritchard is my guest. Peyton, good to have you on. How are you? Doing good. Thank you for having me on. Good to have you on. All right, so you had a strong rookie season, and then you followed that up with a really good summer league performance. I'm curious, how did you approach the summer, and what was your mindset going into summer league? Uh, You know, this summer was just, you know, finding my weaknesses and and trying to improve on them and, you know, just trying to take a step. Um, you know, leading into this next year to, to help my team win. And hopefully my role just continues to grow. And, you know, with that, we uh, grow together. And then for Summer League, it was just the opportunity to have the ball in my hands a little bit more and try to try to lead lead us to a championship and, you know, win games. Peyton Pritchard joining us. So you have the ball in your hand a little bit more. It seems like, even though you've always had really good range, it seems like in the summer you were consistently hitting from, like, well beyond the arc. How much did you work on expanding that range? And then when you can hit deep consistently like that, how much more pressure does that put on a defense? You know, for me, it's just, you know, getting my reps up and always getting my shots in. And I feel like my range just continues to grow from, from the work I put in with the, the shots uh, I take every day. Um, but that puts tremendous pressure on the defense just because they have to come guard you out there, which just leaves you more room to operate and get in the lane, which creates better opportunities for your teammates. We're talking to Peyton Pritchard. Some of the numbers from the summer that were crazy. Like, in addition to the numbers that you were putting up at the summer league, you also went to a pro-am, and you dropped 92, nearly a full Will Chamberlain. What's going through your mind as a game like that unfolds and you're having a game like that? I really didn't even know how much I was scoring. Um you know, it was a it was a tight game and a lot of good players and 
it was like one of the semifinal games in the Portland program. So for us, it was just trying to honestly, I just took the mindset of trying to do what I can to to win that game. So I didn't know until the end of the game that I had that many points, but you know, it was just kind of in the zone, and uh, obviously shots are falling. We're talking to Peyton Pritchard. I mean, it wasn't even a one-off either, right? Like, you chased that with a triple-double, which included either 57 or 60, depending on which stats you check. You led your team to the Portland Pro-Am Championship, and you were averaging roughly 75 per game. I mean, that's the kind of thing that people are going to be talking about and remember for years to come. Maybe you'll downplay that, but what's it mean to you to be a part of something like that? No, honestly, the the biggest thing was for me to come back to Portland, and that's the city I grew up in, and, and give back and, and play, and hopefully I can help um, the basketball community grow more. Um, so that was the biggest thing on my mind, and um, for years to come, I always come back and, and play in the Portland program, and I hope you know we can get more players to come out there. Peyton Pitcher, my guest. I get that. All right, so what about the rookie year you had? Like, for instance, a lot of rookies come into the league, and they can make the transition from college to the pros, but it's never an easy thing. Now, I'm not saying that it was easy for you, but I am going to say that there were times where you made it look relatively easy, and you did so during a pandemic. Was it easier than you thought, or maybe were you pretty good at making it seem smooth? You know, I think I had my own ups and downs throughout this year, and I had some, you know, start off the season, I was I was doing well, and then like rookies do, they go through um, times where it's a learning curve. Uh, my biggest thing is, you know, the NBA season is a lot bigger than college and it's a lot different from any other season that I've been a part of. So for me, it was it was really important to, like, you know, take care of the little things and uh, take care of your body because it is a grind. And I think going into this next year, that's the thing I'll be most cautious about. Was there an actual welcome to the NBA moment where it all became very real? Did you experience that? Um. You know, I think starting off our first two games, we played Milwaukee and then uh, Brooklyn on Christmas Day. So to start off the NBA season playing against, you know, two of the top teams in the NBA, that was kind of a welcome to NBA moment, just how talented certain players were and what it kind of the level you have to be at to be a top team in the NBA. We're talking to Celtics guard Peyton Pritchard. Legend has it also that one of the things your folks would tell you was, if you want to be great, you can't be normal which I think is really interesting. What does that phrase and that mindset mean to you? I think it just means that you can't do what normal normal kids do growing up. Um, you can't, you know, there's times you're going to have to sacrifice and you miss parties, you miss hanging out with your friends and doing things that a lot of kids do these days. But I stayed in the gym and some nights I, I stayed in the gym late or early mornings and sacrificed, you know, hanging out times to, to make it to the point I am now. Right, so like in that sense, when you look back on all the work and you look at all the sacrifices you made, do you look at it now like it paid off? I did it, I got to the NBA, or is just getting to the NBA not the end goal? And is there still a lot more work to be done and a lot more sacrifices that have to be made? Oh, definitely more sacrifices. I think now this is just my life and it's what I'm used to. And so it's, you know, I fell in love with the process and the grind, so... Is, you know, I, I'm going to continue on this path and see where it takes me. Right, so let me ask you this before you go. Earlier in the offseason, the team hired Ime Udoka as the new head coach. He's from Portland. I know that you guys go back a little bit. What was your reaction when he was hired? And then what do you expect him to bring to your team? Oh, I was super excited. You know, he's going to be awesome for us. Um, you know, I just think he'll he'll be able to come in and he'll push us and, and lead us in the right direction for us to become 
competitive and win and, you know, be physical out there. And then the team overall is coming off kind of a challenging season where it had to deal with injuries. Like, what did you learn from the challenges of last season, and what do you have to do as a team to take that next step? You know, I think it's just being prepared night in, night out. Um, you know, coming down to the end of, seed, uh, end of the year, what seed you get is important. So taking, taking care of business during the regular season, and then once you get to playoffs over, you're healthy and you can make a run at it. Celtics have their guard. He's entering his second season with the team, coming off a good year, was an All-American, an All-Conference player, all the accolades, and they're going to open up the year against New York on October 20th. Peyton Pritchard, my guest. Peyton, great to have you back, man. Thanks so much. No, thank you for having me. Let me talk about the Rams for a minute. If you were wondering if the Rams were going for it this year, I think that was underlined once again when they made that move for Sony Michelle. Les Snead and Sean McVay are not playing around. They got to the Super Bowl, and they could have bought themselves some time. They could have rested on their laurels. But instead, they're chasing it harder than ever before. This is why they did what they did and gave up what they gave up to get Matthew Stafford this offseason. That was a brass move from an organization that pretty much only does brass moves. I thought it was cool as hell. I'm not sure Jared Goff thought it was cool as hell, but I thought it was cool as hell. Looking at the quarterback that you have and saying he's good, but good is not good enough. Looking at the quarterback you had and seeing a guy that did have you in the Super Bowl and saying that's still not good enough. Good is not good enough. We need to be great. So they know the clock is ticking. Just like Matthew Stafford knows the clock is ticking. See, the thing is, Matthew Stafford is doing the exact same thing that the Rams have done. Follow that. He's doing the exact same thing that the team did, except instead of saying that good is not good enough in Detroit, Stafford was saying bad is not good enough, and I need to do something better. Like, he knows. He knows the pressure that he put himself under. He knows the pressure that he just put on himself because pretty much everything from a football standpoint is riding on this right now. And if you're wondering if Matthew Stafford knows what time it is or if Stafford knows what you think about him, the answer is yes, he does. He said as much to Seth Wickersham. Wickersham wrote a great piece. He always does. But he wrote a really good piece on Stafford. Like Stafford knows exactly what the world thinks of him. He knows that the world thinks that he's put up really big numbers that don't mean anything at all. He knows the world thinks that he's put up enormous numbers that nobody gives a damn about. You know, like the fact that there's a decent chance that if you don't live in the greater Detroit area, that you might not have ever actually seen this play in, this guy play in the NFL. Or if you have, not that often. He knows that. He knows that you think that even if you have seen him play, it's in games that don't matter. He said it himself, quote, I just want to play in big games, you know? I want to have opportunities to make big-time plays in the fourth quarter against really good teams in big moments rather than a 1 o'clock game on a Sunday somewhere. End of quote. That is such an awesome quote. Like any great athlete, he wants to measure himself against the best on the biggest stage, in the biggest moments. He doesn't want to just stack 
dollars and stats that don't really matter. He wants to see how he does under the greatest pressure on the biggest stage against the best of the best, and he knew he could never do that in Detroit. And notice what he's saying, and then notice what he's not saying. He's not talking about winning a Super Bowl. He's not talking about stacking rings. He's not talking about going to Pro Bowls. He just wants to be in games that matter. He wants to play in games that are big games. He doesn't want to get stuck in a 1 o'clock game that nobody sees. I mean, the fact that he said that to me is pretty wild. You know, and don't come in here and say, yeah, well, not good enough, not hungry enough, not ambitious enough, not aiming high enough. Believe me, the guy is. He knows what's riding on his decision and his time in L.A. for that team and for him and for his legacy and for the way he is viewed ultimately. But the guy's been so beaten down that he wants to just start by playing in games that people actually see. I mean, how can the guy talk about a Super Bowl when he's never actually played in a game that mattered? He knows that. He knows that you probably see him once a year. He knows you see him once a year, and it's right before you carve a turkey. Or maybe a couple of more times if you have red zone, and the Lions are about to lose another heartbreaker. He knows that his stats and his numbers, and his performances have been like the proverbial tree falling in the forest that nobody hears. So when this cat says he wants to play in big games, it's not that he doesn't want to win a Super Bowl, and it's not that he's not willing to pay that price. It's that he knows that in order to be in the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, he has to actually play in a game that matters that somebody actually sees. He has to actually get the opportunity to make plays in meaningful fourth quarters. Like from where I'm sitting, Stafford's not about the stats. Not right now. But I'm going to hit you with one anyway. This stat is incredible. He's won 74 games in 12 years in Detroit. Just, just marinate on that for a minute. 74 games in 12 years in Detroit. And what you want to say to me is, right, Rome, Evidence that he's not that good. Evidence that he really is just a guy with a bunch of meaningless, hollow stats. Evidence, Rome, that he's not a winner. Let me tell you one more thing about that stat. 74 games in 12 years. It's a franchise record. That says all you need to know about the Lions. It's incredible that pretty much averaging a 6-10 season for 12 years makes him the GOAT there. That's incredible. And that's part of the reason why the guy asked for a trade out of Detroit. I'm not sure that anyone's ever had a better case for being traded than Matthew Stafford. And from the sounds of it, he didn't even want to ask for the trade. He didn't, but he had to. Because the guy knew he had to test himself. And not even because of what everybody was saying, but just because he himself knew he had to test himself. He had to put himself under pressure. I respect it. This guy could have very easily just stayed in Detroit, stacking cash, and the easy path would have been to say, I'm loyal. I'm doing my best. It's not my fault. It's not on me. I want to be here when this thing turns. But you know what? He knew it wasn't going to turn. He knew it wasn't going to get better. So now at 33, he's making the ultimate bet on himself. 
And the Rams are making a gigantic bet on him too. And now we're about to find out. Now we're going to find out how good this guy really is or isn't. Since he's entered the league, he's always been good, but there's always been that, yeah, but. He's good, but. He's good, but how good is he really? He's good, but his team never wins. He's good, but does it even matter? How much of Detroit's struggles are on him? And because the Lions ate up dudes like Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson, he always got a pass. Like, the Lions ran off two of the best players ever. Not two of their best players ever, but two of the best guys ever. Both of them decided they'd rather not play football than play football in their prime for the Lions. So Stafford gets a pass. Not anymore, though. That pass is gone now. There is no pass for him now. Going to the Rams with that talent and that coaching staff and that system and those expectations means there no longer is a pass. He has no excuse. He has to deliver, and he has to do it quickly. And nobody's going to care that, yeah, but you're asking a lot of a guy in a brand-new scheme or a brand-new system, a guy who's done it a certain way for 12 years. Nobody gives a damn. Nobody cares. No excuse. Right staff, right opportunity, weapons all around him. And you know what? I respect it. I respect it and him and them for taking the big swing. This guy realized it was not going to happen in Detroit, and now to make something happen, he's got to get it done in L.A. So he got himself to a better spot with more talent and a better opportunity. Now he's got to cash that in. Do it, and he's validated. Do it, and then everybody could say, yeah, you know what? The guy was right. But if this guy comes up short, then we know why. If this guy comes up short in this situation, then you can't just say, it's the Lions. It's all the Lions. Because this guy has everything he needs. He's about testing himself, and now we're going to find out how good this guy really is. I like it. I'd buy stock in the guy right now, even at 33. It says here he gets it done. This guy was talking about, man, you know what? It just got old. It got old putting it all out there and nobody ever seeing it. It got old playing in a bunch of 1 p.m. games that people didn't see. Bruh. I didn't even know you played 1 p.m. games. I thought they had you on tape delay. I thought you were DB'd. Delay broadcast. Dude, I thought you were playing your games like the NBA Finals back in the day when they were tape delayed at 1130 at night. That's unbelievable. That's what I thought. Are you kidding? 1 p.m. games would have been a step up for you, Maddie. I thought you were playing tape delayed games or games that were re-aired on Tuesday on the NFL Network. Bro. How many cameras do they have at a standard NFL game? Like 24 or something? I didn't even know they had cameras at your games. I barely even knew you were in the NFL. If not for the 5,000 yards and 50 sacks you took every single year, I wouldn't have even known you were in the NFL. We are joined by Jay Norvell. Jay, it's great to have you back. How are you? Awesome, Jim. Great to talk to you. You too, Jay. In fact, I want to rephrase that question. I want to say that I've been looking forward to this conversation pretty much since our first conversation ended last year. So how exactly are you doing? How is your life right now? What's the vibe like around the program? Well, first of all, I just got a smile because when when our 
sports information guy gave me your number. I punched it in, and it came up on my phone, Jim Rome Show. So I got you locked in. My man. But I've been big fan of yours and your show for years, and uh, we're, doing, we're doing fine. You know, uh, it's really challenging in our region for people around the country that don't know uh, northern Nevada and, and northern California are going through some of the worst historical wire fires in the history of the region. And we had a Dixie fire, which is in northern California, which is California's worst in history. Last week it was over 500,000 acres, and, and up to this week now it was 700-plus thousand acres uh, when I last heard. And, and where we are located, Reno, Nevada, is in a valley right around the Sierra Mountains. And there's another fire, Calder Fire, that started in South Lake Tahoe, and that's what's really, uh, really disrupting us right now. So for over three weeks of training camp, our camp has been totally disrupted by air quality. We've had to leave Reno, and thank God, uh, we've got a great relationship with David Shaw and Stanford, and they've just allowed us to come and work out. So we're going on our second week of training camp here at Stanford, and uh, we're just looking for some relief from these fires. Jay Norvell, my guest. Jay, I'm kind of, I mean, I, I, I hate to hear it, but I know this. I'm a California native. It's really scary, really, really yeah. scary. But you did a really good job of laying out for the rest of the country exactly what's going on. You know, the thinking had been that this was going to mark something of a return to normalcy in terms of your fall camps and getting ready for the year compared to last year. But as you just made the point, it's anything but. What do you make of how your players have responded and adapted to these challenges? Uh, you know, I loved your interview with Aaron Rodgers that you had earlier this week and, and just the mindset uh, that we've taken. Really, I, I really took a lot from his interview, but it, it relates to us. You know, we don't have any excuses, Jim. You know, we, we have a season that we're preparing for, and uh, we have to really rely on our preparation, uh, all the things that we can control. And sometimes there's a silver lining. You know, we had to leave home. But we spent a week in the hotel together. We really got closer as a team. You know, we pull the cards out, the dominoes at night, and just have some bonding together. And uh, we really grew from that. We had an old-school rookie show. You know, I spent six years in the NFL with the Colts and the Raiders, and we had an NFL-style rookie show and, and just had some laughs. But I think we bonded as a team. And, you know, I, I, I'm a big boxing fan. Teddy Atlas is is a guy that I've heard speak many times. And he talked about how champions are, are really uh, de- developed from the adversity that happens to them. And there's the sum of that. And we're trying to take all these different experiences and help them grow our football team and, and really get better. I'm a big boxing guy still yet, or still so, Jay. Teddy Atlas is great. I've always been a huge, huge fan of Teddy Atlas. I'm not at all surprised to hear you mention him and talk about what you pulled from him as well. Let me ask you about a couple of guys. Carson Strong, Jay, threw for nearly 3,000 yards last year. He completed more than 70% of his passes and had only four INTs. There's already talk about how high he might go in the draft. What do you make of the hype around him, and how is he handling and dealing with that hype? Well, I think Carson got a lot of attention last year because his touchdown to interception ratio was really better than the, the four quarterbacks that got drafted in the first round. And so he's got a lot of attention from that. Uh, he's a very, very talented guy, 6'4 plus, 
He's got uh, natural throwing motion. He's a true pocket passer, and a lot of the things we do in our offense correlate to the NFL. Um, you know, I, I spent seven years at Oklahoma, and, and as a college player, he really reminds me of Sam Bradford when Sam Bradford was in college. Super accurate deep ball thrower, big playability, throws for a high percentage, doesn't turn the ball over. And I think that's got the attention, you know, of the pro scouts. It's unfortunate, you know, this is my fifth year here, and this is by far the last two years have been our best teams. And, you know, I hate to, to have had a short season last year. And Carson, too. Carson could have put up way bigger numbers if we wouldn't have had a short season. And we're just hoping that we get the full season this year and he can really show what he can do. No doubt. No, Nevada head football coach Jay Norvell is my guest. You know, Jay, it's not just him, right? When you combine him with the talent that you have, a wide receiver and tight end, how explosive can this offense be this year? I really am excited to watch our guys play. We've got we got 15 all-conference players back, uh, which is the most in school history. Uh, we've got another NFL-caliber uh, player in Romeo Dubs. Uh, he was by far the best receiver in our league. And out of Jefferson High School in East Los Angeles, uh, just a really talented, talented athlete. Uh, and then we got a six. Six six and a half, almost six seven tight end in, in, in Cole Turner, who's who's the best in our league as well. And then we got an all league receiver in and Elijah Cooks who's six four. And so we've got a very tall group of receivers, guys that are matchup problems for anybody we play. Uh, and and with our running backs back and our other receivers, uh Carson will have a lot of weapons. We'll be awfully fun to watch. We are talking to Jay Norvell. Now, Jay, of course, you open up at Cal on the road. There are certainly easier ways to start a season than going on the road to face a Pac-12 opponent. What are your early thoughts on facing them in just over a week? Well, Cal's a stingy defensive team, very well coached, um, and they've got a lot of veteran players back as well. I know you had their linebacker on a couple days ago, and uh, but, you know, I think it's a great opener for us. You know, Nevada has had a history with Cal. Uh, you know, we're not that far away. We should have a lot of people come over the Sierras to watch that game. And I think it's a great opener. You always want to play a good opponent to open the season, gets everybody's attention in the off season, And we're, we're excited about the challenge. Jay, when you and I spoke last year, we talked about your father, Merritt, who was a pioneer in so many ways, including being one of the first black athletic directors in the country. He passed away in October. What kind of an impact did he have on you? Uh, my dad was my hero, Jim. You know, he uh, such a special man. He was an athletic director at Michigan State. Uh, really, really made an impact uh, helping African-American coaches. Did a, did a lot of educational opportunities. A lot of the Black head coaches all over the country were in mentoring programs that were set up by my dad, you know. And so it's just um, he, he left a big impact on so many people, tried to help so many people. Um, you know, we grew up in Wisconsin and, um, you know, got a lot of friends back there and family. I know you got a place back there. But, but he's just a, really a giant of a man and he just cared so much for other people. 
It's great to hear you say that. I would imagine, Jay, and he, because he was your hero and you and he were very close, but I would imagine this is somebody, I lost my father years and years ago, and I remember whenever I would meet somebody in his business and they would tell me a story about him or your dad was like this, it meant so much to me. I have to imagine you feel the exact same way when you come across people who probably always want to tell you about your dad and how much he meant. There's, there's no doubt. We, we talk about being a person of influence and you know, a person of influence is somebody that, that really impacts people after they're gone. And, and my dad was certainly one of those men. No doubt. Jane, one of the phrases around the program is Nevada grit, which I love. For those who do not know, how would you define Nevada grit? Well, Nevada grit is uh, we have three core values. It's respect, accountability, and then uh, hustle. And once we do those little things, we have this Holy Spirit that, kind of goes over our program. It's kind of like the lucky shamrock with the Celtics, but grit is your perseverance, your passion, your love for your brother, always standing up for your brother, your love of the game. So when you get that knocked down seven times, you get up eight and, uh, and never, ever, ever given up. And, and so, you know, we just, it's the adversity we face every day, you know, having to leave Reno because of this poor air quality and all the fires back home. We're pulling for all the firefighters that are, that are working so hard to put this out. But Nevada Grid is our mantra, and we hang our hat on that with everything we do. Jay, I'm really curious. Is it something, that kind of grit that we're talking about, is it something that you can teach and develop in the guys, or is it something you have to recruit? I, I think it's both, Jim. I think it's both. I think, number one, we always look for character, but living an accountable life, you're learning to take responsibility for your actions, uh, and then giving everything you got every day for, for your teammates and being unselfish. I think that develops that type of mindset. And, and when things happen to you, you get knocked down, uh, you have to learn to get back up and, and, and just jump back in the fight. And, uh, and that's the mentality that, you know, Nevada has been known for, for years. We're a blue collar program. Um, you know, we, 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 we hang our hat on that, and I think that helps us uh, work through the rough spots, and, and we're proud of that. You bet. Jay, one more thought. I don't want to sell your defense short. We talked about the offense, and it would be very easy for everybody to focus on that offense, but when you look at the defense, and in particular some of the talent that arrived in the transfer portal, how good can that unit be? Well, we, we improved tremendous uh, last year. I think we moved up about 20 spots in scoring and uh, in, in Brian Ward's first year, um, we got some really talented defensive players, Don Peterson uh, and, and, and uh, Dayon Henley from Crenshaw High School, really talented. But, but we added three transfers in the secondary, uh, Isaiah Sesama from Wake Forest, Bentley Sanders from South Florida, and Chad Brown from Central Florida. And we really think the addition to that talent in the secondary and the playmakers we have back there really going to give our defense a pop and uh, help us be a championship defense. So, Jay, one quick follow and I'll let you go. I talked to Sonny Dykes about this the other day. You probably know that too, my man. You know everything I'm doing yeah. on this show. But I talked to Sonny <laughs> Dykes about the transfer portal. Like, how do you go about identifying players that are good fits for the team and your culture? Is it the same when you're recruiting out of high school or is there a different process? No, it's, it's, it's a great question. And you know, I spent six years in the NFL, and I look at it like free agency. I look, you know, when you have to fit a need, when you're light at a position, and I know Sonny talked about, Sonny talked about depth, and, and you know, we're a group of five team, 
we we probably have our starting players. We have the same caliber as a lot of Power Five teams, but we just don't have the depth in our room. So when we lose a guy, we not we not we don't always replace him with a guy that's as talented. So we try to find out as much as we possibly can about a guy. But one of the things about uh, the the group of five teams like SMU and ourselves, sometimes we'll get a bounce back that goes to a Power Five school. And we'll be able to bring in a higher talented player than we could out of high school. And so, you know, that's what we're hoping with some of our transfers. I know Sonny's gotten some good ones as well. But it's going to change the game as far as uh, uh, football is concerned. And, and it could have a real positive effect for us group of five teams. So, Jay, I'm going to end this interview the way I started this interview by saying I look forward to this interview since the first time you and I had a conversation at the end of last year, and this was every bit as good and better. Jay, really appreciate you. Great to have you back. Good luck against Cal, and I know you and I will get together and chop it up again soon. Love it, Jim. Keep doing your thing, brother. John in New York. What's going on, brother? Hey, John. Jim, what's going on? Listen, man, that episode was unbelievable. I mean, I knew her story a little bit, but I didn't know everything she went through. And, uh, you know, the conversation that you had with her, I mean, the Hall of Famer, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Jermaine O'Neal, I mean, bringing out things that relate to people socially and everything, and people need to change the way you're thinking. And, but that episode, I was like, what else to pop up? I'm here to my seat. What else to pop up? Are you kidding me? Stroke this. I was like, Jim, it was, it was people that aren't sports fans. I recommended that to everybody who was not a sports fan. And the way I would recommend it is the podcast first, then go watch the Netflix series. And, and, and it's definitely an enjoyable thing. And, um, you know, good luck to the new producer, uh, Tom. Uh, and, um, and then that's all I got, Tim. But that is an amazing, amazing job by you and an uh, amazing job at Netflix. Thanks a lot, Tim. And I'll talk to you soon. You got it, John. Appreciate you. You know that. John in New York. Hey, John. I didn't appreciate the quality of that phone line, but I appreciate him. Good night, Nashville!